Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You awake to find yourself in a dark room. Hello, and welcome to RC Industry Podcast, episode 110. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, video games? John Robertson is a comedian, writer, and video game creator. We talked about what it is like starting out in Australia and moving to the UK. We touched upon his early competition credits, including America's Got Talent, where he faked a seizure, which led to him meeting his future wife. His live-action video game, The Dark Room, started life as a YouTube video series, then became a sleeper hit at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and now is a real-life game for sale on Steam. We talked about moving the idea from different mediums, developing his persona and his on-stage style and comedy uniform, as well as continuing to develop other stand-up shows while touring, essentially, a video game around the country. I found it really fascinating, as I mentioned in the podcast, I saw The Dark Room for the first time this year at the Edinburgh Fringe, and I loved it. I found it fascinating, hilarious, infuriating, and all the things that I kind of didn't know I wanted until I saw it. I highly recommend it if it's in your area. Uh, it's, it's amazingly interesting, and I'm going to be getting the game at some point, largely because I really want to finish it. And the show that I went to, every moron picked the same route, which meant we died every time. It's so annoying to be sat in a room with people that don't understand how video games work. If you haven't seen the game or you haven't seen the show even, uh, don't worry, it, you will understand what's going on. It's not like this is uh, too much of a, a love letter to his cult fan base, although the game and the show is, and as a result I've tried to capture as much of that on this show as possible for the people that will probably look it up and search for it because they like the show or the game or whatever it is that they're looking for on the internet late at night in their parents' basements. So, before hitting play, I am just going to ask you that if you're new here, please do remember to hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do remember to give us an honest, ideally positive review in iTunes. And either way, please do join the Facebook group. It's called RC Industry Podcast and it's on Facebook, obviously. Before I hit play on the podcast, I just want to say that I have signed up for the Edinburgh Festival and I am currently previewing a show around the country. I won't 
go on about where and when that's going to be right now but if you want to take a look in the show notes and have a look and see where I'm going to be previewing and where I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival uh, that would be great I really appreciate seeing some of your faces at the shows it's always lovely to have the audience come down and say hey it's me I'm the person who tweets you or hi I'm a regular listener and I love it so if you could come down to a show that'd be really appreciated and or the Edinburgh Festival and if you're not able to come down if you could just pass on the message to a friend who's in the area that would be massively massively appreciated and i can't thank you enough for the support but for now let's enter the dark room you said i started in perth perth sorry i <laughs> yeah. i have i have been to melbourne uh, by the time this goes out four times and i've, I've been a stand-up for 15 years uh yeah, I, I started out in Perth, uh, in Western Australia. There were, by the time I got there, there were two rooms uh, on the thrilling commercial evenings of Wednesday and Thursday. And you couldn't perform in the Thursday room unless you were doing well on the Wednesday room. And some, some people might think, oh, was the Wednesday room like an open mic room or like a feeder system? No, it was a full pro bill. Uh, and they would put open micers on at the end, and about four of them, about four or five, uh, after the headliner. Uh, so you'd go on at about 10.30 at night, stretch out to 11 and perform to the maybe six or seven people who had stayed after the headliner. And if you were routinely doing well there, you could go to the Thursday show, which was just this really um, very creative, but it was uh, also very commercial, you know, and good, right? And, and both both rooms were good. Like the Wednesday room had a kind of knockabout charm because it was run by a collective of comedians. And the general sense was if you could accomplish uh, 10 minutes uh, then you should, at some point during the year, get a go and get a paid gig. And a lot of a lot of people, I uh, got to say, they were comedians off the back of their charity, myself included. It sounds like they've just stacked the deck against you, though. No, no, not really. Because I, they've put on all the good comedians and then put on the open mic. You assume I mean, that they, nice you assume there were good comedians on. Oh, uh, okay, no, there so were comedians who could talk for twenty minutes. Okay. I mean, most look not not hanging shit, but when I first turned up in Perth. A lot of the guys who were headlining shows were blokes who you would look at now and you would go, that is 20 minutes of pretty solid material stretched out to 40 to 50 with no discernible response uh, from the audience. Not everyone was like that. There were some blokes who were really shit hot. But by the time I showed up, um, the joint was, it was very top heavy with guys who were kind of, some some of them were like hobbyists who had stuck on for a long time. And the guys who were like really careerists, you could smell that they were careerists. And so they were the guys who'd be like, oh, don't do that. No, like, you want to be careful because they were doing corporate gigs, mm. you know, and that was their main source of income. So, so but despite that, I mean, there were so many guys there who were just really, um, just really into young guys coming through and being creative and being interesting. And also, for what I'm saying there, like, the variety of what was on was phenomenal, you know, because, like, you could, you would have the, like, the, the the worst horrors of, like, kind of, oh, an Australian fucking shithead fucking comic, fucking, anyway, so I'm going down the road and these black blokes are, you know, you had those guys, they didn't, um, they tended to go out and work in the desert and then return to the city and wonder why their material had magically stopped working. You know, kind of the moment, um, you know, they went to a place that actually had a postcode or electricity. Uh, that tended to be a thing. Uh, but then there a were guys... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a power line that was connected to something, you know. Uh, you know, a landmark more than just sort of a lonely prostitute who'd kind of fallen out there many years ago, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, 
the yeah, and there were there were guys like you know guys who were you know had studied commedia dell'arte. Like I'm thinking of my mate Don, who you know had gone <laughs> gone to Italy in the 70s and come back with a profound understanding of Italian clowning, but who could also bust out a guitar and do a Bob Dylan parody talking blues called "What Are You Staring At, Cunt?" Right? <laughs> you know, so this is a guy who is you know, but he was like a a very very good universal communicator because he would clown for children and he could go down to a rough pub gig and do this and, and without ever being a sort of cock swinging ultra macho comic he was just very good at um at manipulating low status into sympathy right and there were there were people like novak and good who were a um a a female uh musical duo who had a bit that mostly consisted of they had built what i realized now was like I thought it was a stake when I saw it. I thought it was meant to be like... Because I was 17 when I started, so I had no no real experience of anything. And In 2002? I, uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I was watching them. And, yeah, they had this whole bit that just seemed to be the smaller one, Jude, hitting the other one just just in the vagina, just with what what appeared to be like a paper mache raw steak. And I only I only years later found out that it was a dog's penis. Is what it was meant to be. I don't know what that bit was about. No. I just remember that it was it was visually interesting. Was you that know? mature to a review? Because that's <laughs> well, no. I mean, the thing is, it was visually interesting. I was seventeen. I mean, I didn't take drugs, but I was just you know dopey all the fucking time because mm. pretty much at the minute I got an erection, all the blood would go, mm. and I was unable to think. You know, and I would be so stressed because I was going to go on stage. So you know, these things just occur in a haze of memories. You know, so it's like every single show blurred into one. Like Joel Bryant, who was six foot three and ultra commanding, and had this amazing, you know, this amazing ability to do sets and just to stretch out his arm and just take the entire front row with him. Right, he was great, and I, you know, I like I remember him. We did a show. It was Novak and Good, me, and I was at the time I was a Baptist minister character. There was a lot of because a lot of the comedy came from the theatre, right? And so I had created a Baptist minister character called, to my enormous shame and regret, uh, Father Clancy Auschwitz, because I was seventeen and I did. I'm an edgy little fucker. Look at me go. And um, it was meant to be a parody of right wingers, but the problem was, as with um, satire, uh, I had a couple of blokes come up and go, "I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's good. I think it's good what you're doing." And the character was pretty pretty quickly retired yeah. around the time that happened except for the um the huge texan bloke who came up to me because father clancy used to make it very clear where his actual leanings lay because um he would remember periodically that he was gay and start crying right. uh you know so you gotta you gotta understand like the the clubs that i'm talking about here <laughs> the, this wednesday club even though because like you're talking about a huge variety of acts to the point that Here's a 17-year-old who's going to come on stage with what's actually a high-concept character. Yeah. Um, and I would have, like, a wooden crucifix, which was huge and, you know, had been made for me by an ex-girlfriend. And it said, to my John, my love forever. And that was burnt into the wood. And so people wouldn't fuck with me because I had a weapon. And I seemed to, I seemed to be crazy. Yeah. You know, and it also helped that Perth at the time, whilst a very conservative place... If it, like if they got a whiff a whiff of genuine difference on the street, like I I had to learn. I've, I've spoken about this a bunch of times. I had to learn to be performatively tough and weird mm. on the street so that people wouldn't you know kind of beat me up for perceived you know weakness. Mm. You know what I mean? Like as as though the idea that I might bugger a boy might be a terrible thing. You know, it's a really racist, homophobic place. But in this joint, right, it was positioned such that Diana Starr, who ran it 
was so kind and so giving, right, that they'd allow a deranged pubescent to get up on stage and be like, I'll tell you something, and I got these opinions about racism, and I'm going to do this. And I used to finish um, on, on the very rare occasions when the act went well. Um, I, would, I would finish with a thing called the Twin Towers song, uh, which was a poem, which just went, I'm a twin tower, tall and wide. I've got 50,000 people inside. When a plane hits me, I explode and scatter their corpses on the road, you know? Which is not in and of itself hysterical, but the actual punchline to that is go is going everybody. (laughs) But then the people would do it, right? And yeah, I did it one one thing that people didn't, you know, because I never had any sense of who was actually in the crowd. And uh, as it turns out, of a Wednesday night uh, in the middle of Perth in Northbridge, uh, occasionally the American fleet comes to town. And I was uh, I was doing it, and a um, yeah, a large contingent of naval gentlemen. Uh, was seen to uh, not be enjoying the crowd singing along. And um, a man with a... because I, I did it because a man with a cowboy hat seemed to be agreeing with Father Clancy a bit much. So I was like, here we go, I'll twist the knife into you. And he came up to me at the end, he went, you're going to be a big star the moment you knock off that 9-11 bullshit. He was wrong, but nevertheless. Um, you know, like, because it didn't happen the second I knocked it off, and it hasn't happened yet, but we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, you got to understand this was a permissive, interesting joint, right. right? And you, I mean, it was perfectly suited because the amount of new talent coming in, like people who were going to stick with it, was pretty limited. Right. Yeah, there must have been about five of us, you know, like coming through. Most of the guys are there were guys who had been there forever, mm. or they were coming in from the eastern states, and they, they were quite comfortable. You know, and then as time went on, um, some blokes opened up a Friday night room and then that became another place I couldn't get booked. Because <laughs> yeah. also one, one thing that um, I should point out uh, is that I couldn't, for all of my ferocity of invention uh, and my ferociousness on stage, I couldn't emotionally cope if it didn't work. So a lot of shows degenerated into either me as me crying like visibly crying on stage or Father Clancy breaking character and crying. And then to overcompensate for three years, uh, I, I became a pretty good commercial act. But if I heard a noise that wasn't anything to do with what I was doing, um, I would threaten the audience with extreme physical violence. And that was it. As, as a friend of mine said, they were like, you were so good, but we just couldn't use you. Yeah. Like none of none of us could. Mm-hmm. And then, but then a Tuesday night room opened, which was a genuinely inventive open mic room. And uh, that just gave us all probably the necessary stage time to go back to the Wednesday show and do a good, good pro set. Because for all of what I'm saying about how, you know, encouraging that room was, the audience fucking wasn't. Mm. You know, my favorite thing on earth used to be to go down there on a Wednesday night and watch guys come in from the UK and just eat shit. Because the MCs used to come out and, you know, UK MCs love to go, hello, how are you? Where are you from? Right. And in this room, that was not on. They hated crowd work like that crowd. Like you had to, if you wanted to start that show, you had to come out, do your best joke first, and the audience, as one, would go, funny, and we're going to give you two minutes, yeah. <laughs> right? But yeah, so that could be, a, it was a hard fucking room. So I'd watch these guys go, hello, what's your name? Fuck off. <laughs> That's my name. Like, oh, well, okay, mate. It was great. They had no, like, it was a room where whatever you were going to do, they would take it as long as you grabbed them by the throat and didn't let go. Right. But even then, they'd criticise you on your grip strength. <laughs> so you had to 
I mean, this is like age 17 to 20, your, your age. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so you naturally had to quickly get a thick skin, and this was the time when you were doing competitions as well. Well, that's how we started. Um, I got entered into an open mic competition. Uh, that's how you started in, that's in, how I in Australia, you mean, or in Perth? In Australia, so, oh, just okay. in general. Um, I, my friend Mel, who was um, a fantastic fan of comedy and a fantastic supporter of it, uh, <laughs> if not necessarily of, of every aspect of my career at the time, uh, she entered me in an open mic competition. And we, I didn't have any sense of what stand-up was because to me it was a magical thing that didn't bear analysis. And I thought that it was something that you improvised every night uh, d- completely differently, which anyone who had seen more than one stand-up gig would tell you is not true, unless that's exactly what you want to do, which is, of course, what I do now and have been doing ugh, for the last six years of the 15 years, you know, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, because I started travelling internationally and I realised that my um, my whimsical wordplay... Uh, observations about Australia were not perhaps hitting it in Cambodia and yet at the same time they were responding again to my energy and my presence and my voice Mm. and of course when you take all of that together and you just start attacking people in the crowd everybody understands they're being called stupid it doesn't matter what language it is people love that (laughs) you know and and that was also thanks to Don because he doesn't like that I uh, I do that he really doesn't like it but because I've taken what I learned from him about clowning and I use it to make stories and we go on little journeys Right, he appreciates it now because mm. he used to think it was just an expression of my sadism, but now <laughs> now he understands that it is both an expression of my sadism and masochism. Yeah, so. it's a it's a pre it's a chosen thing rather than a sort of um, defense mechanism that yes. could be misinterpreted as. Well, exactly. Well, the yeah. thing is, that's what it initially was. Yeah, but I, I like when you said, I, "Oh, you have to quite quickly get a thick skin." I was like, "Oh no, that took five years." Mm. That, I mean, I was I was like genuinely a liability. I think I saw on stage web- for five years. I think I saw on your website you said something like I I started making money from it in like four years and or something like that, and then I yeah. didn't get good till the tenth or something. Well, yeah, that was it. The guys down at the Laugh Resort, which was the Wednesday room. I mean, they started paying me probably after about a year, uh, which is very nice, or may- maybe even shorter. You know, and they they were really good because you know they understood that I was a guy. I'm a very I'm very commission oriented. You know, it's a, it's a throwback from school, right? Do this assignment, it's due here. Like, oh, I'll do it. But if I'm left to my own devices, you know, I, I usually I'm like, well, I could tie someone up and put them in a cupboard consensually. They like that. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm much more inclined to recreation than I am to like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to just nut out this creative thing? Like, yeah, it would be if there was a dollar sign attached to the end of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm really good at that. You, you, you know, dangle some money and I'll fucking show up. Yeah. You know, I've, I've never lost that really mercenary edge. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, they started paying me. And yeah, with the, um, God, with the, um, the open mic competition, I mean, that was my my bloody windmill i was don quixote and that was my windmill for years this competition called roar i made it to the state final twice i was so like and so bloody stressed this is in 2007 the last time i did it um (laughs) which fans of uh raw comedy will let you know that you're not actually allowed to enter that thing more than three times so if i'd been going since 2003 and entering every year what the fuck you know but i remember being so mortally terrified that the first thing I did was I went into the um, the communal toilet 
that we were all using at the back of this very large, lovely theatre called the Regal Theatre where Barry Humphreys used to perform in Perth uh, before the kid made it. Um, and, like, the toilet was overflowing just from everyone just going in and just, you know, having a piss. So I just urinated just all over the floor and this kind of very angry, neurotic, you know, and, and drunk as well. Like, I would have had such vodka uh, before going on, you know, just in this marking of territory which you know to be honest uh, yeah if i owned anything that night i probably owned the toilet <laughs> you know because I, I went out and i was so stressed that i um i peeled my entire little fingernail off about 10 seconds before my name was called so i walked on stage with my hand in my pocket ultra casually but while my pocket was slowly filling with blood and i delivered what in 2007 was my set which was five okay one-liners <laughs> Why, if you knew you weren't, or did you know then that you that was not good, or that you, because now you're saying yeah. I wasn't good. So I'm wondering whether you, whether it was a case of yeah. you have to enter the competition, like we'd say you think you're funny by a certain point in your career, so you were going at it early, or if it was a case of ego, or oh, was entirely to get out of what you were in the situation, if you could get, you know, win. yeah, it, it was a combination of ego and the desire to get out because that was the only way. Right, was to go, you know, go do a big gig and show them that you could do it really well. Mm. And, you know, as a result, like, it helped, you know, in the end. But, you know, I, I never had any plans for what I was going to do with it. And, like, if I look back over my career now, I mean, there's a period in about 2012 where I am, like, to be honest, I am a really good, and I still am, I'm a really good big theatre mainstream jacket comedian. If I want to be, you know, I know how to work. I mean, I could be a, you know, I could genuinely be an evangelist. I could run a mega church, right? If I could sing better, I could genuinely be a rock star. And this is, you know, like we, we control audiences when we do darkroom and we do it as me as well. But like, I've seen footage of me telling a story to 3000 people, right? And I recognize all the tropes in there where I'm like, hang on a minute. That bit went really well, so look at my look at my walk of triumph along the stage, you know. Oh, I'm taking my time. These movements are unnecessarily big, but also very slow, so everyone can take them in, you know. And I recognize that, and I'm like, wow, that's not really what people know me for at all. You know, like, even people at the time, but I was like, wow, okay. Somewhere between 2008 and 2012, I learned some shit. But, you know, it, it kind of helped that in 2008, I actually won one of these fucking open mic competitions, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then that meant that I started getting booked on the East Coast in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. And, you know, like the whole thing was, to be honest, like totally driven mm. by ego. And also the fact that in 2008, I got fired from my day job. So I immediately had to turn pro or else we couldn't eat. You know what I mean? So it was like, shit, no, got fired, fucking go, fucking got to do it, got to do it, got to do this, got to win, got to go, got to go to Sydney, got to do this, got to do as many gigs as possible, got to do this. And yeah, and so for a while, like, even though what I'm saying to you there about the, the arena comedian, I was also at that time, like the guy, I did a lot of rugby clubs, you know, I was also, I was also very overweight, so I was able to show up and had short hair. So I was able to show up to a lot of places and be exactly that comedian that I hated. Right. You know, hey guys. How are you? Oh, you know, 
Who are you, you wanker? You know, such observance, such tremendous. Uh, so was you putting on a character for that? No, I didn't feel like it was a character. Oh, okay. I mean, I was profoundly driven. I was also, I was also at the time, because I had, uh, I'd had a very physically active job, right? I was a kid's, um, kid's puppeteer. Okay. at a science centre, which meant doing about four or five shows a day. Mm. And I made that as high-octane slapstick comedy as I could. And then I would insist on carrying everything. Like, And, and we're like, we worked at a science museum, so you're carrying parts of a Tesla coil and all this and all this heavy shit. And, like, I was getting quite fit. But when I, um, when I left that job, right, because my brain in moments of stress just gets rid of facts, you know, like I used to have a gym across the road from my house and I had a membership at the gym and I could have gone there any time, any time. And I didn't. What I did was I bought a whole fuckload of weight loss pills and drank them with energy drinks and Coke Zero. And so I was incredibly, you know, looking back on it, I was incredibly high and angry all the time and incredibly driven, right, but only towards things I understood. And what I understood was showing up and getting the money and doing the thing, you know, so hyper-aggressive. And I was very good at that. And that, that worked for a while, you know, but I went to a rugby club once and I, I got asked, and, and I, I tell comics this, and they, they sort of go, oh, lucky day, you know, like I show up and I'm meant to be um, doing the middle spot and I've just come on, I've come on after my mate Alex, who used to impersonate the then Prime Minister of the day. So he's, he's come, oh, hello, everyone. I'm uh, former Australian Prime Minister John Howard. I'm a profound racist. And that would have gotten a round of applause, not because he was a profound racist, but because they probably agreed with, you know, Howard's policies. Um, and so he'd been on, and then it was going to be me, and I had just bought a scully um, coat, which is this? Um, Rich Hall wears them. Uh, they're, they're, yeah, black cowboy coat with nice, um, nice embroidery on it. And I came out, uh, but before I went on, uh, they went, "Oh, John, the headline is running a bit late, uh, so can you do a bit extra?" And I went, "How long?" And they went, "Oh, I don't know, about 20. And I went, "You got 500 bucks?" And they went, "Yeah." And they just got it for me. They just gave it to me. You know, they just got it. I watched them get it out from the till. They went, "There you go." It's like, "Righto." You know, so. I- <laughs> fucking doubled my fee you know so i went out and i was doing what i thought was a really perfunctory roughhouse pub show and um when it was over i ran into the headliner who was a bloke with an acoustic guitar who would get up in a minute and revealed that he had actually hadn't updated his act uh, since Green Day had released Time of Your Life. So 1997, or 99, oh, you know, give him his credit, 99, even though his intro to it was, this is a song by Green Day, whatever a Green Day is, right? And uh, he came up to me and he didn't indicate I'd done a good job, but he went, oh, hello, I'm here. And he had the same jacket. At that point, I was like, "I gotta, I gotta do something." Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing the future, and I don't like it. And the other thing was, that it was interesting. What I thought was my future did not like me mm. either, because it turned out he'd bitched to me um, while I was on, bitched about me while I was on stage. He went, oh, "I don't like these new school comedians." Mm. So I, I don't know. I must have been doing something different to what I thought I was doing, but mm, I'm pretty sure I wasn't. I've so I've had to stall for headliners before, and I've had to fill time for people who are turning mm. up. Personally, I've never done what you just said you did, mm. and I've never heard anyone do that before. And it sounds like it's 
very much you you had an air of confidence mm. about being able to ask for that as well mm. or was it a case of you just going well you know what this extra work now or well yeah it, yeah like literally I did it stop you getting gigs did anyone no, go well he's not he's gonna you know no no it didn't stop me getting gigs because there was a culture of being paid for your work and that was the most important thing was that you be paid for your work and this was a corporate function and you get paid for your work. Mm. The whole, like, when when YouTube started coming out, you know, and people are, people started giving a lot of stuff away for free, right? I mean, you and I have had a chat about this, mm. you know, at the loft bar, right, I recall. You know, and, and now, now that we've had less vodkas, um, you know, <laughs> I think we can probably be a little more articulate about it. But to me, uh, people giving anything away for free was completely anathema to me, you know, because... But that was because I was in a, in a culture where I could get people to pay for me mm. immediately. And I didn't really like, like the best I would do is I thought of myself like a plumber, which is all right, you know, like, but I'd be like, yeah, okay, I, I want to establish a good working relationship with you. Like, yeah, I, I've got this weird, like, it, it's this weird faux masculine plumber butcher idea of, all right, mate. Yeah, 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 I'll cut you a deal this time, but next time, you're right, price go up, yeah. right? Which, which is actually not a bad way of working with people. But it did also mean that occasionally I would turn around, like, to to rooms, you know, rooms who would be like, oh, hey, um, you know, come and do a couple of um, open spots for us, and then we'll think about booking you. And I'd be a bit like, nah, nah. And that cost me bookings. Yeah, but also at the same time, you know, like there's at least one club, uh, which was this, I mean, you know, the Sydney Comedy Store, who they went, oh, okay, come do, come do two open spots. And I was like, well, it's a comedy store, so all right. And, you know, bless their heart, that was a Wednesday and a Thursday. So it was one night after the other. And it turned out the Thursday night show was a competition show, right? And I won a spot on the main show. So then I got up on the main show and I ended up in the bloody paper the next day. So like, great. So then they started booking me, right? But that that was like, I should have taken the lesson from that, which was be confident and be polite and occasionally jump through the hoop, mm. right? <laughs> whereas, whereas, you know, and it, it is, you know, it is appropriate sometimes to go in with front, right? But not always. And, but as time's gone on, one, one thing I've realized is if I feel like I'm being undervalued, right? The, th- the thing I've learned is... I'm not, I'm not wrong when I feel that way now. I was then. Like, at, at the time, somebody could say, oh, let's give you this. And I'd be like, how dare you insult my family? I'm paying a mortgage, you know, and, and all this. And I, I was constantly on about my fucking mortgage because we owned a house in Perth. I was like, my wife was mostly paying for the mortgage. Like, you know, so much of my attitude at the time was making up for the fact that I was a very small drop in the ocean, in my own house, you know, let alone the world, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, but one thing I've found is, like, over here, there are guys who, you know, like, I'll, I'll have a chat to, and I'm like, oh, okay. For, for, it's like, for whatever reason, I'm not getting the sense that you see anything special in what I provide, or or, or you just generally, like, you don't... Res- it, it, it's not like you don't respect me, but it's like, okay... Something hasn't hit here, and you're thinking this is just somebody else, and I won't, I won't truck with that. I'm just sort of like, well, you know, and I'm just quietly like, okay, no more emails for them. You know what I mean? It's like we don't, I don't need to go to that venue. I've got other things. I'm going to do this and this. You know what I mean? Or occasionally, as as I like to say, 
uh, we'll just hire the venue, <laughs> you know? Yeah. With What I find really interesting about that is the initial darkroom was mm. online for free, mm. wasn't it? It was the YouTube version. Mm-hmm. So how did you get to the stage where you were like, actually, I'll give this all, not give this away for free, but I'll put it somewhere where it can be for free then to start with. Well, I mean, okay, well, now now we talk about Darkroom. Uh, the weird thing is for all of seamless, it. Right? Seamless, right? Seamless. 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 Well, to, to, to be honest, for me, I feel like you've entered some HTML code because I'm like, Darkroom, tags, you know, <laughs> hello. Suddenly I'm there. I, um, I'm very much an old school gamer. So, oh, yeah, and I, I see. I haven't been able, I, I, honestly, because of the clashes of the thing, I, I got to see the Darkroom for the first time this year and i loved it and okay. it was because i'm i'm more mario than than you know sort of anything that they bring out or, mm. or left for dead's the only 3d game i've enjoyed in the last couple of years hmm, really just, left for dead yeah cool which just because it's literally just you four friends and a load of zombies yeah that is it doesn't cool. have to be you yeah. know what i mean there's no there's no big game no. plan you should get yourself fist of the north star lost paradise that's um, the same thing oh no but it's just the best dumb fun i've had in ages oh, okay. it's so good and it never overcomplicates itself it's yeah that's just, the thing i feel like too many games uh, yeah uh, yahtzee Crowshot does a lot of this oh yeah he's, he does he's yeah constantly banging on about oh the plot point needs to be and i'm like it doesn't always have to have a plot could nah. just be as simple as we're playing a game yeah it could be anything yeah you know? well think of it like there's a game called kung fu master in kung fu master uh the evil Kung Fu Master X has stolen your girlfriend. His <laughs> name for just X. Yeah, X, just X. has stolen your girlfriend. And if you'd be so good as to go to his house <laughs> and walk from left to right, punching very much the same man, armies yeah. of the same guy, yeah. for the next 20 minutes, you might get her back. Right? It's called Kung Fu Master. You can punch and you can kick. That's is, it. It's still it, good. Is there an option of... Just going to meet another girl that no. isn't going to get. No, of course, there's no option. That's a shame. It's not, you know, it's not called kung fu coward. That's Look, this is something I can't broach. People who want extra backstory in video games, that there's none in the dark room. No, well, there is actually. Is there? Oh, there's a fuck ton. Oh, I haven't got the game yet, so I'm sorry. Well, there you go. That's why. No, no, no. Well, I did watch a video two days ago for this of someone doing the game. Mm. Like, as in, you know, like those live streamers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, thanks for watching. We, yeah. Um, Look. The thing with giving Darkroom away for free, um, like right at the start the on YouTube. One, yeah. yeah, I mean, but that was that was a different time. That was when I was, like, in, in my mind, like really being paid quite significant money uh, to perform as a live act. And I was doing stuff, like, in Perth, which, which even though it wasn't, like, friends of mine got jobs on FM radio, uh, various other friends got their own TV shows, things like that. I was doing things like I was the opening act for Wayne Brady. I was the opening act yeah. for Steve-O. I was doing these things that meant that for a... Ba- and I had, um, I had my anime conventions, which were huge, like, colossal stuff. And that was the best part of my career. So, like, Darkroom was originally a joke I told at the anime convention Wycon who paid me very handsomely to be there. So, because... And the thing was, I would have, like, forgotten about, you know, oh, giving stuff away for free or whatever my ethos was at the time. Mm. Because I was so boosted by the swell of enthusiasm from those guys. Because I was always treated so well. Like, they were like my family. It was like the first gig I would do every year is I would go down to Wycom and I would host the cosplay and maybe do a Saturday night uh, entertainment, maybe go do a stand-up show or something in this beautiful 3,000-seat theatre, which is where, you know, like, <laughs> Tenacious D played there. I mean, you know, it was, they didn't open for me, but you know what I mean. Like, it's, it's great, you know. And 
I, yeah, I mean, so because the response to, because I just did this bit about how crap video, old, old video games were, and because that bit stretched to 40 minutes because of the audience interaction, right, I mean, it was, you know, we've got to do something. And then I was like, well, hold on a minute, YouTube annotations, I could put options. Oh, Christ. So off we went, you know, and like, that's why we gave it away for free, because it was just meant to be something and then it was a um then what happened was because it went viral right suddenly i was you know that was just a thrill what do you sorry i don't interrupt yeah. you but what do you call viral because obviously the, the number of views has yeah. changed for how much viral means well yeah well and at I'm the time okay well look we got in a very short space of time four million channel views off the back of darkroom right uh, Do you know how that? Did you have a load of subscribers at the time? Or no, okay. not at all. Still don't. You okay. know, um, I had a, I had a, I had a very talented YouTuber, Max Mofa, who at the time, uh, I mean, he's he's on his millions now, but he he at the time, I, I watched his work. He had a video that was just him zooming in on the anus of a cow, right? And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, it was hysterically funny though. Oh, and yeah, that was the video where he was flipping off animals right. as well, like that. And I thought that was <laughs> that was really fun. And as the camera just kept getting closer and closer to this cow's anus, I was like, ah! you know, the thing was, I was like, if this were in black and white and slower I'd, I'd think this was transgressive French art so yeah. I, I was into it uh, and you know and we all were because the camera was forced right up there uh, but he wrote to me at the time because he was like how have you done this because you don't have any subscribers like because it hadn't ever occurred to me that YouTube would be anything that I'd want to do and even I said to him at the time I was like well it's not my focus you know because it isn't my focus at the time was just performing live because I find that to be a really romantic thing to do uh, stupidly, I could have, uh, you know, spent the, oh, I don't know, the 23 and a half hours a day that I'm not performing stand-up. I probably could have, uh, could have used some of that to release some more videos. But the thing that we've done, like that, that channel now, and I'll get back to your question in a second, is because I put long-form stuff on there and short-form stuff, we've made a place that people, people just spend days hanging out on my channel, mm. you know, and they just sit there and they just eat all this content. And it's, it's kind of nice, but like there's been an inflation as to how much content's required. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like at the moment, I, like, I have a look and I'm like, in the last month, I get something. And, and like, I'm not pulling this out of my ass, but it's things like you have provided 4 million minutes mm. of viewing content. People have watched 4 million minutes of your stuff and you have earned $4.95. Yeah. Right? But for me, that kind of says it all. Mm. Okay. In 2012... We put the thing out for free. It went viral. Uh, and I knew it was viral because suddenly I was on television in America. You know? Uh, I had to go and film extra content in a cupboard in Singapore while on tour in Singapore just to get Level 2 going and all of this. I was on NPR. Uh, various celebs played it. You know? On and on it went. Uh, the guy who made Monkey Island found it and mm. tweeted about it. You know? All this stuff. And then the weird thing was because we couldn't, we couldn't really monetize it because the videos were so short and having ads pop up, which was the only real way of doing it other than the pre-roll ads at the time, um, would have destroyed it. Yeah, your pre-rolls would be longer than the video. Exactly. Um, and you couldn't serve them if the video was longer than a minute. Mm. Uh, by the time we did monetize it, uh, which got a great deal of hatred from players, uh, you know, the sweller was already gone. So, you know, I think in the end, directly, the YouTube revenue off that 
was probably about 50 bucks. Mm. Whereas I was commissioned for more stuff off the back of it. Like I got some, like I ended up making a follow-up called The White Room for Hattrick Productions. And that was uh, so successful that I had it erased from the internet. <laughs> it does not exist and there are no traces of it anywhere. Why did you have it? It was a failed experiment. Uh, it were, where if it, it did really well, surely you'd want... Well, the dark room did really well. The white room didn't. Oh, sorry, I missed okay. No, no. What happened with the white room is this, you know, very good production company. You know, they'd made Father Ted, you know. They, they went, look, we like the dark room. Uh, can you make us one of our own? And because I didn't have any ideas at the time, having, you know recently had one idea i mean and i say that but i was always a very productive writer you know like i, I by that point that's 2012 uh by that point i'd written five solo shows mm. and, it's, and it's not like a mad person being like i've written 30 novels and then you see it and you know it's all spider scrawl and yeah. there are not real words you know these were good cohesive good shows that i'd written mm. you know like and different hours of stand-up and and theater shows and i'd written a play and all this stuff but because I didn't have a, an idea on the go at the time, I just inverted the previous idea I'd had. So I went, well, we had Dark Room, which is a parody of 1980s text adventures. Why don't we call it The White Room? And it'll be a parody of open world adventures. Instead of having four options, the options will be just about limitless. And instead of the character being British, he'll be American. And they went, sure. And they gave me a shooting budget. And because I had uh, no sense of time management, uh, I bought a green screen, some equipment, I set it up out the back of my house. I started doing some stuff there, which was good. Uh, to make Deadline, I took all of my equipment uh, to the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and every single day before I went to do my shows, I had I removed all the furniture from the furnished flat I was staying in, scratched up the floors, I was told later, uh, <laughs> to, my, <laughs> to my mounting horror. Um, <clears throat> never have I used the phrase, it was like that when I got here, so often. Um, yeah, that was, oh, Jesus. Yeah, uh, I just had this studio and I would fall asleep under the studio lights and all this. And I just worked so hard to make this thing function. And we put it together and it was there for deadline. And then they went, great, we're going to release it in August. Uh, and this was in March. And I was like, fuck. Because I was like, I could have, you know. And then uh, it was one of those moments where, like, if, you, if you're going to innovate, you can't, in you know, like, don't innovate just once. You know what I mean? Like with Darkroom, I innovated because I was doing something almost nobody was was doing. And I'd also accidentally created a, a beautiful format that's really understandable. Uh, in this case, uh, mobile had taken over being the dominant way that people watch YouTube mm. uh, in the intervening months between March and August 2013. Uh, so having a game based entirely on annotations which aren't clickable on mobile mm. was not going to work. And by the time they released it, we also discovered that the guys running their channel had deleted about 30 of the videos because they were cluttering up their feed, right? So I had to put them in and redo it. And yeah, in the end, it just didn't work. And it gave, um, the other thing was because Darkroom was so much bang, bang, punchline, you know, you're in a dark room. How would you do that? You're an idiot. Um, with the white room, what we'd do instead is the white room was just very interested in everything you had to say. And I was a character called the man without a moustache, who was just a bloke with a, um, a top hat and a moustache made of gaffer tape hmm. and uh, this rotating um, column of eyes behind me that we'd animated very badly. And he would just sort of be, how are you? Why don't we go do this? 
And uh, because there was no punchline at all, the tension just kept building and building and building. And some longtime fans wrote to me and just went, I've had an anxiety attack just trying to get through the first few videos. I got to tap out. And so, yeah, I waited about three months, realized it wasn't going to get any better and just went, get rid of it. Mm. And they did. So it's... So you still had control over the final well, product? Well, I spoke to the guys. I mean, the thing is, by that point, they were winding down their YouTube channel anyway. Right. So that, it didn't matter to them. Yeah. You know, they, they were happy with it. It was a valid artistic experiment. Yeah. yeah. But it feels a lot more forced than the darkroom was. Well, the thing is, you say that, but you didn't see it. You know, no, like, no, I'm saying it based on your description. I've not seen it. No, I know. Yeah. I know that. But I mean, the thing is, it was... It, look... Some things are created instinctively mm. and it doesn't hurt. Some things are created under great duress, but the end result might be the same. Mm. And uh, yeah, White Room, if you looked at it, right, you wouldn't go, oh, Jesus, here's a guy busting his ass trying to make something. You would go, oh, yeah, this is a lunatic who's amusing himself. Mm. You know, that's, that's what the end result was. That's it. Like people, it's, it's one of those things, one of the nice things about a live show for instance, is people can see sweat. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when it's done and when you're exhausted and you go in for like a really deep bow and there's that chance that you, you might not be getting back up from having bent down like that, yeah. people see that and they understand. Mm. Whereas when a, when a project arrives, right, people don't see all the work that went into mm -hmm. it. So the thing that arrived easily and the thing that arrived, you know, like, the thing that was the agonizing mm. childbirth and the baby came out sideways and malformed and you don't love it, kill it, right? You might not know. Yeah, <laughs> might of not course. know the difference. So, but it sounds like, so the deadline was March and it mm. came out in August. Yeah. And you were in Edinburgh in August. I was when, that, when it released. So you were doing the dark room when they released the white room. I was. And, and they knew that that was going to be... Yeah, yeah, they wanted, they wanted it. They gave me a standee uh, to put out the front of my um, show. Oh, okay. So did it lead to people to go and try mm. the white room then? Not even remotely. The thing oh, okay. arrived two weeks into the fringe. Right. By, by which point, you know, if, if you want a video... I, I don't know if this is still the case, but if you want a video to go viral, right... You know, like it, it can eventually, it can, it can sit there for years and someone can mm. find it and yeah. whatever, whatever the repackaging is. But if you really want to deliberately mm. make it happen, you know, you got to get as many eyes on that as possible in the first fucking 24 hours. Mm. And by the time this came around, it just wasn't going to happen. Mm. And, you know, the thing is, I'm not disappointed about it. I don't think anyone involved in the end was disappointed. They just went, yeah, cool. Everybody took a chance. We made something that was creatively interesting. Mm. You know, these things happen. Mm. That's all. So what was the question? <laughs> no edit point at all. Uh, the, the question was, how hard was it to transfer the game from a YouTube format to live? Okay. Uh, that... How many previews did you do as well? I none, none. None. I didn't start doing previews. Okay, bearing in mind, the first time I wrote a solo show was 2008. Mm -hmm. I didn't start doing previews for my shows until 2015 right uh oh no wait 2014 2014 but that's a um that's a tragic story that one uh yeah not not professionally tragic but personally uh because okay and, and look everything in this answer ties into what you what you've asked about darkroom um i do not uh if i can avoid it i do not or at least i didn't used to draft right i did not like to draft i liked to when I was younger, I would write something, assume that it was a perfect document, uh, completely misunderstand my own actual skills, 
and uh, go out and, you know, try to entertain people with some subpar Spike Milligan, Monty Python nonsense, which, of course, failed horrifically. And uh, but, but how, how did it fail? I said it, I said it perfectly. I said it word perfect, right? Without realising there was no space for humanity in that. Uh, I was a very confused young man because I also believed that everything should be done in a burst, right? Uh, and one thing that I've discovered, though, is if you do think that everything should be done in a burst and you do everything in a burst for a really long time, you become really good at getting a lot of stuff done really quickly at a higher standard than people expect, you know? So it's that thing of it's like, oh, you know, like I've just written a book, you know? Um. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Can't really talk about it other than the general concept, but it's coming out, right? And, I mean, they were delighted because in three months it was there and they're like, holy shit. And, of course, then we spent the next six months editing it. But you know what I mean? They're like, whoa, okay. You know, like it's that kind of like, oh, you want a production machine? I'll show you something. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's this kind of beatnik Spike Milligan thing. Of first, first idea, best idea. I can do this. So, you know, it's a combination of like you know, being a workhorse and being and being good at, at just listening to your instincts and being impulsive, mm-hmm. right? Or what I ugh, what I used to refer to as genius when I was a lot younger and really thought that me because uh, I thought a genius was someone who did things effortlessly. When of course a genius is somebody who does things well and is called a genius by people who didn't see the work that went into it. And, or, and sometimes claims to have done it effortlessly. It didn't occur to me that the beatniks were lying a lot of the time. I was, who, who knew? Who knew that these jazz drug addicts were going to lie to me? Anyway, um, you know, who knew William Burroughs was untrustworthy? You know, he only shot his wife. Who knew he was a fuckwit? Anywho, um, so with, with Darkroom, 
uh, to turn it into a live show. That was my mate John Hayward uh, was playing the you know, the game, and he went, you know, you could do it live. And I went, what do you mean? He goes, well, you'd be the guy, and I just make a program where four options appear on the screen, and we'll make a thing where you can write the stuff down and it goes into a map. You could do that. And I went, all right. And we booked a show at the Fringe. We did it free because we didn't necessarily know if it was going to go anywhere. And the thing is, we didn't think about it. You know, I must have spent maybe an afternoon making up that map. And then we got the, you know, we got the program downloaded to my computer, having tethered my, you know, my mobile to the computer while standing out the front of the venue, maybe half an hour before I went on. And the first show that Darkroom did, we did it to four blokes who sat in the front row. And by the time it was done, because I mean, with four guys, it could, at the time it it ran for 20 minutes. uh, I turned to my wife, Joe, and I was just like, shit, that's got legs. And it did. And the oddest thing about it is that that year I was doing a hyper-scripted show that I absolutely believed uh, was unparalleled critic bait. And it died on its ass because somehow in the years I'd been doing stand-up, right, I had almost entirely missed the fact that live is what really makes it beautiful, you know. And I, had the, and I couldn't coalesce, I couldn't get my writing and my performance side together. I could, like, if we were going to go do a big gig, I could pull out a crowd-pleasing thing that would make a lot of people really happy, right? But not like now, where I could show up with nothing and do that, right? (laughs) You know? And, yeah, so Darkroom. I mean, Darkroom at that point, right, I was like, it was an afterthought. But it fucking took off again, you know, and so it was that thing of like, no, no, this is what has to happen. And that's where I poured the discipline. And yeah, it also it also helps that because I like to do things in bursts, right? When I see people who are doing the kind of, oh, yeah, it's, you know, like it's Monday night and I'm going to go and do this and I'm, I'm doing these mics, man. And, and they're doing all this stuff. And, you know, like I've seen people who are, are more career minded than they are creatively minded without, you know, Kevin Costner was right. If you build it, they will come. Right, so when you've got the people who are there, like I once, I once heard a guy who was talking to um, talking to Phil Kay. This is on tour in the Philippines, and they're both lying on a beach. And he turns to Phil and he goes, "I don't know, man. I'm 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 in L.A. and uh, I I think I think my ideas are more like a a ten year comics, and I'm only a five year comic. What do you know about that?" And and you know, Phil Kay's <laughs> sitting there. You know, he's drunk off his ass. He's, you know, hasn't changed his clothes in four weeks. You know, he's playing that guitar that's only got three strings. And for all of that, he's absolutely tremendous. He's like, I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. You know, what are you talking about? And that was the thing as well. Like, I was like, hang on. You're more focused on your hypothetical career than you are on actually having a career because your career is the work. You know, it's the work and what you can do to back up that work. So it's like, for me, I've occasionally been the guy who's like, look at me. I've got this product. Now, I've got this product, and this product's deeply useful for you, and I'm through force and charm and whatever, we're going to both agree, you know what I mean? We're going to do this, okay? And then as the years have gone on, and I've kind of chilled out a bit because I feel more secure in myself, right? It's like, oh, yeah, this is my body of work. You guys like that? All right, take it or leave it. You know, not, not a bad thing, but it's like, okay, that's fine. We don't have to do anything. We can go do this here. We do this here. You know, I go where the, I go where the love is. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, what, what I was trying to get at with that. What is, a horribly wanky thing to say, but at the same time, accurate. Yeah. I, I feel like being authentic comes off wankery sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Like, How did it, you make that worse? No, do you 
Christ! Oh, oh, I see. Sorry. Oh, you you mean you? Yeah, no. But it's true though. Being authentic does come off. Yeah. Does come off as wankery, like yeah. using the phrase authentic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. Hello. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you a horrible question. No. I'll give it a um, shot. Well, no, it's not worth it. I know it's not. <laughs> I'm not going to get past it. I basically, I've seen photos of you when you first started doing darkroom, mm. like press shots and things, and I've seen the evolution of, let's say, your comedy uniform yeah. for the darkroom and, and offstage mm. becoming a, a, a part of you, yeah. it feels, but also part of the character of mm. you on the stage. And I'm wondering how that evolved and how, and how you came to it. Well, um, when I... Okay, when I, when I started doing stand-up, uh, yeah, m- look, make no mistake, dear listener, every answer I've got is long-winded today because I, <laughs> I did I did someone else's live I did someone else's live podcast earlier today and I, right. I I showed up late and I'd missed it and I was just shit. So I'm trying to make up for it with actual content. Um, we are getting thrown out of the room in ten minutes. I understand. <laughs> that's that's fine. That's okay. Let them fucking try. <laughs> Netflix will wait for me, okay. and they have to at the moment because they haven't come knocking. <laughs> anyway, um, look. When I started, I had a sense of what I looked like on stage because I had a trench coat and I thought that that made me look dangerous. Uh, and then as I got a bit older and my hair got long and I didn't uh, brush it very much, I wasn't aware that I now looked homeless and dangerous <laughs> in the worst possible way. Then I cut my hair and I suddenly looked sharp and I was very, very thin and I was very well dressed. And I had a sense that that meant something, but I didn't really know you know what I mean? Like, I, for, for a little while, I was very well presented. Then I, yeah, lost my job and became this kind of hard-hitting, you know, I'm just going to be this. And then I, I literally became that guy, you know, and it just became I was of the jeans and shirt brigade and the, um, the spiked hair. And I had, like, my only uniform was I had sideburns because that was really useful for an opening joke. Ugh. But then, and, and that filtered into Darkroom as well. Like, if you look at early photos of Darkroom, Darkroom is a bloke with a torch, and a shirt and then it became a, a, a shirt and a corset uh and then that had, had leather trousers and big boots added to it and eventually we added the shoulder pads and the hair and then he became a fully formed guy but for the entire time there i had no my my old sense of presentation just vanished for a few years i just had no idea what i looked like doing anything and now when i see it i'm like okay all right that's a full package and and what i don't know what level of like ego and ignorance that is but it's that thing of just going oh i did it so it must be okay it feels in my head yeah. you know when you're picking your sims character mm. i imagined you doing that i imagined you sort of maybe not the sim like as in in that game but as in you designing it yeah because it feels so designed but i imagine there was an organic process well the whole thing was organic yeah i mean and that's been the the beauty of darkroom mm. and 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 to be honest it that became everything that i i was looking for like when i talk about working in in bursts right mm. the nice thing about it is it's organic you know and also like for instance if you're writing uh, you know it doesn't have to be a narrative but just writing something that has to follow something Okay, so you might get a really, you know, what feels like a really shit hot idea and it just pours out of you. And after a particular amount of time and experience, you can go, okay, even if that's not brilliant, because you can't assess that, you might just really like it, okay? You can go, I know how to do that in a way that's appropriate for me. And I reckon, and this is in terms of live, but even just written, you know, and I, I think we can get this over. But then you might find, okay, this is the bit that really spurred this on and is like the, the beginning of the project. Mm. 
Now I need to match that with everything else. And that doesn't have to be hard. You just have to find the thing that does that, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's what I like to do. And I, like, I do that with all of my writing. And with live shows, right, it is just in the end informed by what's happening. And as the years have gone on, it's just like, okay, like somebody said to me at one point, oh, you should really wear a suit, right? And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I should wear a suit. You know, and the reason my hair's bleached is because Abigail Shimon came around the house and she just got her hair bleached. And I went, gee, that looks good. And my hair was a lot longer than hers, so I knew we weren't going to look the same. So I was like, great, I'll bleach mine. Mm -hmm. And then I grew it real long and suddenly I looked like probably what I always wanted to look like without even knowing. Mm. you know yeah i get it yeah and that's it it's like and my wife as well you know is of course a deep help with this because she goes you know she's like look when you leave the house you know just just dress like you know dress like you dress like the idea of you Mm. so i would just wear black all the time now and it works Mm. but like people like i can't if i i mean you know not a famous person but i can go to particular towns in the uk and in australia and if I stand around long enough, and this can be anywhere between half an hour to, you know, four days, people will, you know, I look like Darkroom. They're like, Darkroom! Mm. You know, and they know. It's like, hey! And that, that's a really nice thing. And that also, that ties back into um, a thing I learned at the, doing the anime conventions, right? Because that was the only time I had a sense of presentation. I don't understand mm. why that was. Uh, but well, the thing is this. I used to always wear a purple jacket, mm. right? No one else had a purple jacket. And if you wear the same outfit every time, everyone knows where you are. Mm. That's useful. Even if they don't know your name, they go, there's the guy in the purple jacket. There he is. Yeah, it's something I've thought about a lot, especially with interviewing comedians that have a look. Mm. You know, like I was talking to Tapeface about this. Oh, yeah. And and how, you know, if he doesn't wear the stripy top, he could just walk around. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was a very long interview. Um, (laughs) But with, you know, he just played music. But with, (laughs) with, with, when he doesn't wear that jumper, he said, I can walk around, like I can walk up to people who've known me a while and it'll take them a second to go, oh, oh, sorry, Sam, Sam. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like because they're used to how he looks. Oh, that's great. Yeah. One thing I found, because I, I, I thought at one point, pretty shortly after I got my hair bleached, right, I thought that it was the hair. So what would happen is I would leave venues. I, I'd never owned hoodies, but I, I, bought a, I bought some hoodies and I would put the hoodie on and leave the venue, right? Like, And this is after doing like a rough pub gig, just, just for fun, right? Mm. Nah. <laughs> nah, it turns out people watch your face during the yeah. show. <laughs> Especially yeah. when you got a torch on it. It's, well, yeah, yeah. Well, people, well, people aren't stupid, you know. Yeah. And well, and also, I mean, that's I do I do hoodies after club gigs. Um, when we do dark room, you know, I mean, I've probably sh- like as a guy said to me once, he was like, when I met you, you were in black wearing a big jacket. Then you went on stage as dark room, and you were in black, and you had big shoulder pads on. Now you're back in a different big jacket and wearing black. Like, so it's like, oh, who's this guy? You know, it's like if people coming to Darkroom, like I can show up and I've got a suitcase and I'm all in black leather. And people who don't even know the show just kind of go, oh, that'll be the guy. Which is a nice feeling. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people don't want to be typecast, Hmm. but I feel like there are advantages to it. Well, I mean, typecast, typecast is an interesting thing because I thrive on my versatility you know what i mean like like this typecast in the sense of oh there's john he looks like john right but i've got a body of work Mm. and that's you know that's its own reward because you have the people who are like oh we like john the whip-wielding sadomasochist we like john the anarchist we like john the singer 
we will hopefully enjoy John's book that's coming out. Mm-hmm. Some people like, you know, they like my little um, my little polemics that I'll write down on Facebook occasionally. So they like me. They like me as a columnist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like some like people people don't come to me because what they want is mainstream stand up. They come to me because they want to laugh mm-hmm. and they want to get it the way I want to give it to them. Mm-hmm. The nice feeling. Yeah. And I've got a whole bunch of different avenues by which I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't. I don't feel typecast in any way because I got all this shit going on. Of course. You know, and it doesn't bother me that most articles about me, if we're talking about comedy, start with John Robertson, probably best known uh, yeah. for the darkroom. It's like, well, why not? Oh no, this wasn't. Yeah. Uh, no, I know. I'm just a saying. Negative. I'm saying no, that oh, there's yeah. a lot of people who think about that. You mm. know, where they say, "Oh, I'm known for this thing, but I've got so much other." You know that. Yeah. And and I understand that, but it's also like I feel like there's a a worry that the thing they're best known for is holding them back in some ways? Ah, well, maybe it is. Maybe it is for them. But it's still a live thing, I suppose, as in, like, it's still existing and you're still doing it. I suppose if you'd stopped doing it 10 years ago, you might be like, well, why are people still bringing up that? Uh, To be honest with you, I would be delighted. You know, because the thing is, I have people who remember my earlier work. I've been, you know, I've been around long enough and I've had people who have been kind enough to take a great interest in what I do and they remember shit. You know, like the guy who said to me at one point, Bob the Blob and his vomiting knob, which turns out to be something I said in a show in 2009. And Because I, I was like, is that one of mine? They're like, yeah, well, fuck, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people, people are very kind. And it's like people who remember, like if I put out the Australian Idol audition that I did mm. and I put that out online, some people will go, oh, I remember that. Mm. And then they're like, is that you? Mm. Right, and it's, it's nice because that's somebody who came to your career later and wasn't yeah. aware, but remembers seeing that on TV. Totally, but yeah. I, and and I've heard the Dark Room being described as a cult hit a lot. Well, it is, and I suppose. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Uh, the Darrens. There's, there's a lot of people who, if it's if it's a cult hit, surely it's a, it's not a mainstream hit, but it's a, it's it's a hit. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. what 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 you, you automatically then you were like, oh, it is. Like, how yeah. do you view a cult hit then? Different to say just a hit. Well, what I said was because I said it is, and then I said the Darrens. Um, okay. Because, well, look, okay, the other day, and this is all right. <laughs> this is this isn't a name drop because the circumstances by which it happened are silly, right? But uh, Dara O'Brien, um, who's an excellent comic, as we know, Dara. Uh, came to see Dark Room. I hope you appreciate how how hard it was for me not to go. Sorry, Dara. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have loved to have heard that. After you said it was a name yeah. job, just, I, every element of me wants to go, Dada. Yeah, Dada, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the 19th century absurdist movement came to see us. You know, they had a fish and God, they really didn't like whatever they didn't like. Yeah, whatever that was about. Anyway, he came, well, he came along to see Dark Room and, well, you know, was very kind about it. That was nice of him. But I messaged him because the game's come out. And I was just like, oh, hey, can I send you a copy? Right. So I sent him a copy. And he ended up tweeting a lovely thing about the game because he went out on stage in Bristol and there was a woman in the front row wearing one of my shirts. Right. And that's what I mean when I say it's a cult hit because he was like, hey, respect to the uh, what are you, grassroots marketing or underground, you know, because that's that's what it is. You know, like I've got guys, they like to call themselves Darren's. There's the Darren Zord, who's like a group of elite Darren's who have formed one kind of massive Darren, like in the Power Rangers. Uh, and people who know all the catchphrases. And it's something, you know, it's something for them. And it's, bu- it's built up a beautiful community. Mm. And the reason 
the reason that I say cult hit is because that's, I mean, that's out of respect for them. That's out of respect for what they've built, like um, the Darren's Flamboyant Potato Appreciation Society, uh, you know, or the, the Black Balloon Brigade. These are all like groups of people who appreciate the work, enjoy it, and they bring new people to it and they have fun and, you know, like they just, they've, they make the live show as glorious as it is. And so it's, it's things like when I go to new territories, even though we have a really nice time, I miss those guys. Mm. You know, there, there's something wonderful about seeing people who are genuinely like the show is a man in leather abusing you and they're there to support that and they're into it you know what i mean (laughs) and and it's that thing like we did the insomnia gaming festival the other day and there were some cosplayers there and one bloke leant over and was like he is going to fuck you up and then of course i did you know i showed up they were like halfway down the room you know there were 1500 people there they were like somewhere in row 10 right and i went down and fucking ripped them and he was like we told you and I was like, you know, how wonderful, yeah. you know, like a guy in the middle of the room is like he, you know, I've seen him so often. I know he will <laughs> spot you, yeah. sp- particularly you, and he's coming. Yeah. And it's, yeah, and that's great. Mm. And that's why it's a cult hit because the people who are fucking into it mm. really make it, you know, and that's what I want. Yeah, totally. I, I feel like a lot of people would like their just base to come back. But mm. I know, I mean, when I was in Edinburgh this year, you had yeah. like a really big poster on the Cowgate yeah, yeah. of your face and stuff. And so I suppose as much as you want to respect the cult, you do want to bring in new people. Well, of course. But the um, thing is, the cult bring in new people too. And I mean, I, let's not call them. The, the, the supporters bring in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it, look, it, look, to be honest. that word. That was my fault. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, to be honest, if it was a cult, we'd be one step closer to what I actually want, which is a religion. Because, of yeah. course, it's tax-free. But, um... Yeah, like so. Are posters and things bringing in people as well? Yeah, do you know? Of course, like, uh, yeah, they do. I mean, just like because it's spectacle, mm. and that's you know, and that's fine. We like new people, of course, are what we want. Mm. Okay, but the core are really beautiful. And the mm. thing is, I don't. I like to go and do shows that are just for them. Mm. Like we had in Leeds. Was it Leeds? Leeds, the wardrobe. Leeds. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, we had an event. I didn't organize it. They did. Darren Con won, <laughs> you know, and that was members of Darren's Flamboyant Potato Appreciation Society, guys from the Sci-Fi Weekender, and that room was sold out, you know, like and, and like it was mostly people, and they they had spent all day together, mm. you know, making flamboyant potato shit. That's what we call a pineapple. Yeah. I should give some context to that, right? And there's a lovely person there who'd made a dark room plushy, mm. you know, and had even put in the detail of my teeth and the armor lit up, right. Mm. And all of that's gorgeous. And so the thing that I really like is when you go to see... It's like when you go to the wrestling, okay, which I really admire. When you go, go to see a live wrestling show and the crowd are super into it and the crowd are chanting along because they, were th- they got there before you did, right? You will join in mm-hmm. and it becomes a wonderful thing. Definitely. Right? And that's, that's the phase that we're in at the moment where it's like, all right, you know, we throw the doors open to whoever's interested come for whatever reason whether it's like i like to see people get verbally fucked up come on in a game show great a retro gaming thing great oh he's just a good comic and i was looking for something to watch great we welcome everybody you know whatever come in Mm. right but if you're there and it's like hang on a minute that half of the crowd are chanting along what is this I think that's more magical, mm. you know, and so that's what I'm saying. You know, of yeah. course we, of course we'll bring in. You know, we'll always we'll always go seeking new audiences. Yeah. But for me, a huge part of the spectacle 
is the crowd that's really adopted it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And now you do a kids' version. Yeah, it's the same show. It's the same show? It's the same show. And how do they get involved differently? Well, kids... Um, or is it you're picking the parents to do the... Family? No, I pick the kids. Okay. Um, the thing with kids is... Do you ignore the parents? Then? So I don't mean to drop you just... No, no, okay. no. I sometimes attack the parents. I attack whoever feels right. I assume it, you have to be slightly more PC with how you attack a child. Well, we don't... Well, the thing is... You're I, talking like silly. Well, just, look, PC is, a, is an odd thing because... I always like, and again, to make a wrestling, you know, make a wrestling metaphor here, right? Because I briefly trained as a pro wrestler. Um, what you do to wrestle is you hit somebody as hard as you can in a safe place, you know? So, like, you might hit somebody with your forearm, not the, you know, not the hardest part of your arm, and you might hit them across the back of their shoulders and it makes a tremendous noise and they can feel a wampum impact, but it's not going to hurt them. You know what I mean? And the thing is, when I attack people, right, it's a lot like that as well. Like, I mean, you can say to somebody, look, you friendless loser, right, and be right and have them love it because they're like, I am a friendless loser. That's tremendous. How did you know? Right. But, yeah, um, with kids, right, I wouldn't want to go after anything that was a weakness anyway. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, the only thing that you do is you go after things that are irritating the rest of the audience, but you have to make certain that you know exactly what it is that's doing it. And and mostly what it is is genuinely talkative, um, you know, talker, talkative, overindulged young white boys, you know, very much, you know, kids who are pretty much mirror images of me at that age trying to make the show about them. And you can wheel around and just go, shut the fuck up. And people will lose their minds, like, depending on the mood, right? Usually, uh, you know, like, in the kids' show, in the kids' show, probably, you know, about as strong as the swearing will get is shit, and it's, I'm much more likely to threaten, you know, real violence. Whereas in the adult show, when we have children, one of the first things that I'll do is go, are there any children here? We get a kid, like, how old are you? I'm six. This has happened, by the way. I'm six. You don't mind if I swear at you, do you, sweetheart? No, good, I'm going to break your teeth, you little fuckhead. Right? People, they just lose their minds. They clap. They have a great time. Mm. You know, what, it's just spectacle. What made you want to go to do a kid's show then? Oh, money. I was promised, <laughs> I was promised money. Right. Uh, and, but it was, it was one of those things where, like, that was my producers who thought it would be a really good idea. Catface. Yeah, catface. Yeah. But then it turned out to be a really good idea because... Like, it's, it's a different... Ex okay, the different experience is that adults, adults respond faster than children. Fa adults respond faster correctly, right? Children require a little bit of a thing. But what do you have to do with the kids is you have to go them hard because it doesn't matter that they don't know what an old video game is. That doesn't mean shit, right? It's just the yelling man is here. He looks funny. The rules are you pick this and if you fail, you die. And you get that across with the children and Bob's your uncle. You're away to the races. You can do whatever you want. You know, give the kids a crap prize. Brilliant. They love that. Mm -hmm. Okay. They get that down entirely. Uh, but despite the fact I used to be a kids entertainer, I, I'd forgotten so much about doing it by the time we actually got round to it mm -hmm. that I was initially quite afraid uh, of bothering the children. So the first fringe run we did of it, the shows that were really good are the ones where I did not give a fuck. Mm. And I have to remember that at all times, just not to care and be brutal. 
It's my birthday. I couldn't care less. You know, you'll never see another one. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's it. Someone tear the throat out of that one. Mm. You, the ugly boy. You know, how will I know he's ugly? He's in a darker... Actually, I'd probably do that to a father. Mm. You, ugly. You know, because that's a thing as well. You know, like what, what adults can take yeah. in front of children is a wonderful thing. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, oh, that's it. And also, yeah, we get a lot of mileage at these shows just turning to fathers being like, how's the divorce going? They fucking hate that, but the room loves it. Mm. Yeah, look at this sea of Prosecco mums, mm. that kind of thing. Anyway, um, so I was told, you know, like th- that this would be a good little, good little bit of extra scratch. And that's how it began. But then, you know, you're just playing with children. Mm. So you're back to really what you'd started doing, you know, what would have gotten you into it anyway, mm. which is a lovely thing, and you're being paid for it. And, I, you know, I was going to throw the kids' show in the bin when we turned up to Leicester Comedy Festival because the adult show was oversold mm. and the kids' show was only half. And I was like, oh, you know, oh, maybe it's not working. And then we won Best Kids Show. Mm. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Did that help? Did that help with ticket sales for Edinburgh? Or yeah. does that award not transfer? No, it helped. No, it helped. Okay. I mean, like, we, the kids' show was really healthy. Like, the, the thing that helps the kids' show is just me remembering to be myself and attack with the, again, the violence and, you know, the violence and the gore and the emotional range but occasionally, you know, occasionally with kids, you just take it down a little bit. You know, Hello. Right. They don't, you know, don't patronize them. No. That's the most important thing is not to patronize them. And the worst days are the days when you find yourself doing that mm. because you're worried that a parent won't like it. I, I went and saw, well, yeah. this year I actually saw the most kids shows I've ever seen. Yeah. Just because, A, I enjoy watching friends of mine who do, like I see all year round, have Mm. to tackle kids. And B, not tackle is the wrong word, but they, (laughs) depends on the show. But but also the way that you have to articulate an idea to a kid without being patronizing Mm. is always, it's just a really good lesson in in sort of uh, communicating a point to someone Mm. in a way that, like you said, they'll take a little longer, but they don't need to be told, you know, like there's no... There's no barrier there as such no. other than just timing because they haven't had enough life experience to know some of the rules of the game of a theatre, if you like. Yeah, that's it. You just yeah. give them the important bits yeah. and just make it clear and make it fun. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's what we strive to do. Um, you know, like, to be honest, the best thing that happened it with, you know, this year with Dark Room for Kids is that a man who had, as he explained to me, a man who had stepped on a landmine uh, whilst fighting in Afghanistan... Uh, came to the show and he shook me by the hand and told me how much his son had enjoyed it and he just went nah that's he just went that is really good family friendly entertainment because i mean you're looking at you're looking at a guy who's gone to extremes of humanity that other people can't you know and and if they're very lucky in the rest of their lives won't ever have to Mm. you know like he's literally been in the shit Mm. you know and if that guy can turn around and go, all right, no, no, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. That, that thing you're doing there, that's good. That, you know, that's really meaningful mm-hmm. because that, that puts things in perspective because you might go, oh, I don't know. Is that too much for the kids? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, mm, mm-hmm. this is a guy who, because, I mean, thing is, right, you don't, you don't come away from a landmine unmaimed. No. You know, and this is a guy whose you know, child has had to live through the trauma of him coming back and all of this. And when you see that and they come to you, you're just like, yeah, I reckon I probably will say fuck. Mm. You know, I don't think it means anything. 
No, it's just language. It is just language. Well, I mean, you know, there's that whole... Uh, without, Hierarchy of language. Well, without getting the whole thin end, thin end yeah. of the wedge. Oh, they're just words, mate. They're just words. Yeah, no, it didn't, that. yeah, that didn't work for bullies when I was at school, as I remember. If you... No, I don't want to get into that again, because I talk about that a lot in the podcast. Well, I, I bet I, you are. I don't, if, if it's an excuse... I don't want to get into it. Then it's... Yeah, we'll I don't want to get into it at all. Okay. I mean, for, for me, like, that entire argument fell down when I was nine, because I was like, well, you're saying deliberately the thing that you know will hurt me. Yeah, yeah So yeah. now I'm going to hurt you. But no, that's what I mean. It's the intention yeah. of the word. So yeah. if, you just, if I just say, fuck you, mm. like now, you know yeah. that there's no like actual intention for me to say, yeah. get this, you know, like... It's, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, yeah. And the thing is as well, if the Darkroom, the character, yeah. tell her, fuck you! Yeah. So it's just like, <laughs> the very idea. Yeah. You know, the video game doesn't like me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, it's, and it, contextually... Mm. You could almost say anything as long as they're on your side. Mm. You could you could uh, do the biggest threat ever, and it would you know, yeah. be fine. Why have you made it a game? What was the? It's kind of come full circle now. What, what was? How long has that been a project, and what was the reasoning behind making it an actual game? Well, we'd always we'd always wanted to make an actual game, right. uh, but yeah, just for various reasons, it, it, it wasn't appropriate. Um, you know, there, there was a. We were thinking about it last year, maybe making it a mobile game, which would have been a very different model. And uh, then Stirfire Studios in Perth, who a, a mob that's principally made up of people I've known since I was fifteen, they they're very talented, and they were looking for an interesting project involving mocap. And of course, what could possibly involve more motion capture than something based entirely on a live performance? Mm. So that coalesced quite nicely, and it became. Like uh, it became a really good opportunity uh, to, yeah, as, as much as I can offer, give back to my own community. You know, give back to the the great geek culture of Perth, Western Australia, which you know has supported me. Jesus, you know, from before I was in stand up, you know, before, you know, bloody supported me for eighteen years, right? And, you know, and, and that those guys would really help me by finally making, a, you know, a document that, that would just, you know, like, it just works for you while you sleep. And, e- and even though I'm spending a lot of my time at the moment promoting the game, uh, you know, you wake up in the morning, you check those sales figures, you're like, great, look at that. You know, like people, who knows where these people are from? Who knows who they are? Mm. You know, are picking it up and it's, you know, people are buying it at a steady rate and all of that. And... Yeah, I mean, we made we made it because that was something we'd always wanted to do. The opportunity presented itself, and then, in order to do that, it became again, you know, great. You got a deadline. There's a paycheck at the end of this. Burst, you know, and a hundred pages, which eventually turned out to be three and a half hours of recorded footage later, recorded in a marathon week session, you know, a, a, a session. <clears throat> a session of mocap that was so physically draining that it gave me a hernia like literally a section of my stomach wall popped through uh you know which i kept secret because um, that happened about day four of filming and we had another two days so i just didn't let them know that i was in a lot of pain and it was hurting to shout um you know drank a lot of whiskey and um yeah we put this thing together i mean level one is out it's got an hour of motion captured footage in it and now another two levels are going to drop mm-hmm. you know as we move out of Steam Early Access, and it's just fascinating. So it's, in many ways, kind of a love letter to your supporters. Yeah, very much. Um, yeah, like, we we deliberately created it so that... Because, I mean, a, a big concern... The, stu- the studio had, um, well, three concerns. One was that I had never done a game before, mm. but then we were able to allay them by pointing them 
one to the success of well the live show yeah. you know and and the yeah. and the YouTube well both versions of the YouTube game and with and without mentioning White Room even once uh, you know and they were able to look at that and go okay no th- those really do function as games you know and and they are they are good right and they they I think they they just want to know what I intended. You know, whether or not, like, it was just going to be like, yeah, this game's just going to deliberately irritate you. Like, no, no, no. <clears throat> the game will irritate you if you play badly. Mm. That's the convention we have, we've gotten rid of. Like, a lot of games encourage you. Like, you know, the level's designed, so you're going to go over here and you're going to see this. And this isn't like that, right? The game is designed, if you're going in the wrong way, to discourage you. Mm. And it's up to you to find the right way, mm. right? It's like a kid said to me, Kid, kids watching the live show and guess you just die you just die um like for everything you just die for everything and i was like well no you don't because there are good options and she's like well what's a good option i went well one where you don't die and she was like oh and then i'm like yeah it takes 20 correct steps to leave the dark room and she's like what and that was the thing i was like because then she's like hang on so there's 20 steps where you don't die and i'm like yeah but they're not the only 20 that's what annoyed me most when i came and saw it yeah was someone kept picking something like turn the light switch on and mm-hmm. i was like have you not worked out that that is not a fucking good option yeah like it was ju- literally i was yelling at the other side of the room going you fucking moron yeah that's like, what it's for yeah yeah and, that, and that's the thing you know so their initial concern was that but of course that feeds into it that feeds into people's experience of it because yeah. it's like an 80s text adventure which is you just go it, it's like you're just going to keep doing the same thing has anything changed contextually you know but also in this there's room to be open to that Mm. because maybe maybe if you do do something a hundred times something will change or maybe it won't it's like life for fuck's sake you know what i mean like it's the whole banging your head against the wall thing eventually something might give way you or the wall or nothing will happen depending on how strong you're doing it etc Uh, so that was their first concern. Then there was concerns about the content of it mm. because they knew that I would be brutal and that the game would have a lot, you know, more scope for brutality. Mm. And it does, you know, like we, I've used it as an excuse to target American gun crime and gun culture and the incels get whacked and all this stuff is just in there. You know, there's a, a moment where this animal speaks to you in a Son of Sam-esque manner and delivers a whole bunch of life advice that is not to be followed through on, you know, and it and it's brutal and morbid and all this shit. And because it's being presented verbally, mm. like when people write about it, they're like, I did this and I did this and I did this. And they're coming out of the game going, I did this, all this stuff. Mm. When, of course, like, well, well, did you really do that? Mm. Yeah, it feels like you did. Mm. That's brilliant. You know, when I've just spent 38 hours in a game where I'm like, and we drove in the buggy and we went over there, we went through the desert and we rescued this man. All right, you play this game because stuff's hard to unlock. When stuff happens, like, you do feel a sense of triumph. So that's something I wanted to give people, Mm. you know. And then, um, oh, was the other thing? Yeah, the content, the fact I'd never made a game before. And yeah, yeah, maybe they ended up being a little worried about how much stuff was going to go in there. But it's, yeah, it's interesting. And Mm. it's just like to produce... Okay, to go from a show that was a parody of how shit old games were mm. to now being a show that is in its own right a good game. Mm. And part of the reason some people keep coming back is because they're finding the hidden story that's mm. in there. And now to have that existing and like approaching not its final form, but its final iteration 
for that medium mm. you know first and final you know what a lovely feeling you know like it it's as close as i've ever felt to feeling like douglas adams because of course there's no um depending on the version from the radio play to the tv show to the novels he, and the movie huge elements of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy change mm. so it's different variations yeah, of yeah. the same you know same franchise and, I, and i'm really. feeling that as you're talking about different models as we're talking through it yeah yeah well that's it you know like the live show doesn't have the same map as this as the youtube game mm. it doesn't even have the same story mm. as the original youtube game mm. uh and this thing has a different like a different story to the live show and well you know not not that different but it's expanded and the map's completely different and yeah it's just whoo mm. you know fuck i mean it's a, just a it's an incredibly lovely creative endeavor mm. yeah and, got, one, and once we make that budget back commercial <laughs> uh i've got two more questions for you but i'm going to ask one and see if it's the if, if it's worth being the final one just based on your answer sure okay? man um what's the biggest mistake you've made and how did you overcome it well, professionally, yeah. Um, well, okay. The the biggest mistake I made uh, was letting letting stress in. That was the and because that dogged me. That dogged me for longer than that first five years. It was a real enemy for the first five years, but it filtered into mm. into every interaction, and it meant that like there, there's a lot of stuff in my in especially in my early career that would have been better if i just kind of nodded occasionally and went like yeah 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 you know and didn't presume malice where mm. malice was not present mm. but because but on the, on the flip side um because i believed i was involved in this sort of sacred holy quest uh towards whatever you know it motivated me to get off the couch uh yeah i mean just um it's it's that thing of just like don't worry don't worry about not not having the thing today. Mm. Just you know, just you know, uh, things will happen, and and just just be you know like. At the moment, I'm in, I'm in a position where I can quite pleasantly look back and I go, wow, that's a lot of work, and it hasn't really hurt to do, you know. Whereas when I was younger, everything getting anything out of me was like pulling teeth, and I realised at one point that I had the ego of a very successful genius artist with none of the accomplishment behind it and so it's not about yeah it's 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 about you got to filter your aggression to where it's meant to go that that for me would be would be the biggest mistake that i made in my career uh but i mean again and you know this will sound like you know somebody <laughs> it's like this is the biggest mistake uh yeah, it's not it's not a great tragedy, uh, but it's that thing of like just take shit when it's necessary, but don't fall in to being one of those people who just constantly take shit. Or for me, the difference is this: then this is specifically in the context of live club stand up, mm -hmm. right? And we're to we're talking about the hand to mouth <clears throat> you booker relationship. Mm -hmm. There's a club in Sydney. First time I rang them up, they went, oh, John Robertson, oh, we, we know you. Great, come, come headline the club, right? Because I'd been going to Sydney and getting paid work. Because I was going in getting paid work, because I you know, rang, rang some of the correct people and other people had vouched for me, I had value, right? And I had value long enough that this one place could go, how great. There was a very talented comedian from Perth. 
he showed up. Uh, one night I was going there, down there to headline, and I was like, wow, you're here, you're in Sydney, what are you doing? He goes, oh yeah, yeah, I've flown over. I've flown over and I'm, I'm doing 10-minute spots all around the place. And I went, that's great, man. And then I'm like, hang on, what? What do you, what do you mean? You're doing 10 minutes tonight. And he goes, yeah, and I'm like, you're getting paid? No. And I was just like, shit, you know, he's, while in the long term, that will endear him, you know, to some, some people and maybe he'll, you know, be pulled through the ranks and that'll help him, right? For me, I was like, but this is a club that I know you can just walk straight through the door in. And I knew that, that guy's body of work and I knew he could have done it, but he didn't present himself as having any value. So of course they just went, oh great, another guy, more grist to the mill. You know, we got, we got a lot of comics. You know, great, you'll just be happy because you've got the time. And yeah, I don't, I don't like that, you know, because he, like, he could quite easily have been headlining that show. Mm. But I was, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And the, the difference was I had gone in, done the work mm. and shown I had value because I refused, you know, unless it was totally necessary, I refused to eat shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that helped. Yeah. That helped. But I, you know, I just wish occasionally... <laughs> Occasionally, when I was younger, the word cunt wasn't appended to the conversation. Like, no, I won't fucking cunt. <clears throat> you know, totally unnecessary. And of course, I didn't have, my voice wasn't as deep at the time. So it was very, very pissy <laughs> and very prissy histrionics. Yeah. Well, I'm going to leave it there. But thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. Where's the money? That was John. Hearing about how he moved the idea from different mediums and how he's never forgot those people who supported him along the way was inspiring and amazing to hear. I'm one of these people that literally I spend the four-hour journey home from Edinburgh emailing and messaging everyone who's contributed even in the smallest sense to my Edinburgh festival to say thank you because I feel like everyone deserves the praise they have for helping support me and I do that for gigs. I stand at the door, I say hi to everyone on the way in and I thank them on the way out and I send them an email if they sign up to the mailing list and I, I just... I loved hearing someone who is further down the line to this to me who hasn't forgotten that and even though there are other people who are big names who haven't forgotten that I just don't feel like that it's talked about enough that that there are people that make your career and there are people that support you early on that you you need to remember and you need to really give back to those people as best you can. Um, I, I loved hearing about how he's happy with his cult following and, and his cult status, if you like, uh, being known for the darkroom. It, it was great to hear a plus side of being typecast in a very specific way. I feel like a lot of people try to avoid being typecast, and so, I, I don't know, it, it, it's nice to hear an alternative view to typecasting that's a positive one. Um, if you want to get a copy of the game, uh, there's going to be a link in the description. Please do go and buy it. You can find it in the show notes or you can just search for The Dark Room anywhere on the internet and I'm sure you'll find it. Um, if you like this episode, you might also like the episode I did with Rob Kemp about his high concept comedy musical hybrid show, God that's a mouthful, uh, called The Elvis Dead, or you might like my episode with Richard Herring about how he takes his ideas and puts them in different formats online, gives them away for free, and then asks the audience to support him so that he can continue creating things that they value. I really think you'll get a lot out of both those episodes if you like this one, so do go and scroll back and please check them out. The Ask the Industry podcast is a fruit that got in Gravity's Way production for the internet. All elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for subscribing. And thank you very much for rating and donating if you do. I'll see you all in about 14 days' time. 
before you go, before you go, before you go, uh, I just want to quickly say uh, I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival. I'm drilling down the details on dates, times, and all that sort of stuff. But just so you're aware, uh, I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival in 2019. I'm also going to be previewing the show from about April onwards around the country. And then I'm going to be on tour in September and October. Now, this is the most vague plug I've done for anything, but essentially I'm going to be updating my website with these details as soon as they are available. Please do keep an eye out for them. I'd really appreciate it as that would really help. The one thing I can confirm is I am doing a one-off potentially DVD record. Again, that is something I'm, I'm dealing with. I'm sorting it out of sex, drugs and other things I never do at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London on the 21st of March 2019. If you can come to that, please do. Uh, if you would like to get half off the tickets, tweet me. Tweet, tweet me something like tweet, tweet me tweet me something mysterious like my uh, my favourite macaroon is strawberry flavoured, right? Tweet, tweet me that, and I would DM you the discount code so you can get money off your tickets to come and see that show live. I'd really love to get some of your listeners in and to watch the show. I'm really, really excited about it, but also really nervous about it as it's quite a big space, even though it's uh, the studio space. But um, yeah, I want to get the the thing recorded and out the door. So if you can come, please do. If you can't come, please tell a friend and hopefully they'll come. Thanks for listening. You die! You die! You die! You die! 